Becky and I were um, were in a church once, and um, the we sat in the back because I wasn't speaking, and our children were our boys were sitting on the it was just Andrew and Chris at the time were sitting on the floor coloring, and a board member of the church came up and said, "You have to take the children out." Excuse me? He said, you have to take the children out. He said, children are a disruption to the service. I said, I promise you, these kids won't make a sound. And, you know, they travel with us all of our lives. And so they really work great. He goes, nope, no kids allowed in here. So I looked at Becky. I said, okay, grab them. And we got up. He goes, you don't have to leave. I go, yes, I do. <laughs> and um, Jesus welcomed children. We welcome children. And you know what? If Jesus can't work over a baby's cry or something like that, he's not Lord of all. Sometimes people, they disturb me. Well, you just keep your focus on the message and let a baby be a baby. Amen? So we just welcome these kids. I love it. I love it. I'm always excited to begin a brand new series. Sometimes people ask me, and I was speaking to a group of pastors, and they asked me, you know, how long do I spend on sermon prep? And I said, I can't answer that question. I said, there's times that, you know, I have spent years working on a single message. And this series, Grit, has been in the making for a long time because there's a series of characters that I want to look at for the rest of the summer about what we can learn from them to become passionate followers of Christ. And so this series in particular, I think any of your lost friends would enjoy hearing these messages, but it, in particular, it's for us as believers. It's for us to grow in our discipleship. In that question and answer, as I was speaking to these pastors, they asked me what some of my favorite preaching texts were. And so I shared with them, and... Um, John 3.16 was not on there, so I was asked about that. And I said, you know, it's my favorite verse. I love John 3.16. But the reason I've never been able to preach on it is I just don't feel qualified to preach on it. I said, I believe it. I quote it. And I said, sometimes I think people hear it and they just let it go right over their heads without fully comprehending. It's such a rich passage of Scripture. God so loved the world. God so loved the world. God loves lost people. God loved you and I. God loved us in our sins as much as he loves us right now. God loves us. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. How did God do that? How did God you know, it's one of those great mysteries about God, become a human being. Why? I mean, to leave heaven? To, to, to take on the body of a man? I mean, just think about it. God takes and speaks everything else into existence and then lovingly creates you and me, creates us, breathes into our life, a man becomes a living soul. <laughs> Unbelievable. 
Unbelievable. Becky's often said that God took one look at Adam and said, hmm, I can do better than that. So, unbelievable again. He takes a rib from the side of Adam. How do you create a woman out of a rib? And that intimacy, not the gender wars that we see today or even the gender confusion we see today, but that intimacy that God intended between a husband and a wife. God breathed into us and we became living souls. And then, of course, you know the story of how sin was welcomed in and corrupted us. And Jesus became one of us, fully tempted in every way like we were. said that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm going to live forever with Christ. You're going to exist forever. Do you know that? You are going to, even if you're not a Christian and you're here today, you're going to exist forever. You're going to exist either as a child of God and enjoy eternity and fellowship in heaven with unimaginable wonders, spectacular. It won't be a boring place. Mountains will be more bigger and beautiful waterfalls will be more crystal clear imagine getting to play with the animals I mean just think about what heaven is going to be like and then if you're not a Christian then you will exist eternally separated from him in a place of torment forever and ever but it doesn't have to be that way but when I think about my children and the gift that God gave, I'm not worthy. I'm not qualified. I preach it. I teach it. But I've never just, and maybe one day I will, just come up with one complete message on that verse. Because quite honestly and quite frankly with you, every time I read the story of my hero, Every time I read the story of my Savior, Jesus Christ, every time I read the Gospels, when I come to those terrible places of the garden, of the torture and the crucifixion, I can only drop to my knees and weep and realize He did this because He loves you and me. When we hated Him, when we despised Him, when we were his enemies, he did this. And that, to me, is the greatest story of all. It's the greatest story of all. And those pastors, at least they said they did, they understood then. Because you can't treat it academically. And you can't spiritualize it. It's just one of those places where you have to fall down on your knees holy, holy, holy. And what? What made Jesus do this? I think it's this word I want to look at. It's grit. And I'm not talking about, and I'm not trying to be funny, but I'm not talking about, the, you know, grit your teeth and gut it out. But I'm talking about grit. The spiritual power that comes from grit. And I'm not going to go through it today. It's, I'll try to bring all of this out in each series but I just a few years ago I made an acronym of it 
guts, resilience, integrity, and tenaciousness. And I see this in all of these characters, but I especially see it in my hero, Jesus. And I want not just give you principles, but I want you to enter into the life of Jesus. Those are very intimate words that Jesus uses with us. Father, that they may be in us and that we may be in them. Father, you and I are one. They are one in us. Those are wedding night words. Those aren't engagement words. Those are words of intimacy that God wants with you. And to be a passionate follower of Christ is not just about practicing principles. The principles will work. But it's about entering into the very life of Jesus. Now, the word grit has become a popular business word. I began working on this before Angela Duckworth wrote her book, Grit. And now there's all kinds of leadership things on grit. But I want to talk to you about something a little different than what you would hear in the business world. I want to talk to you about a little different model of grit. And it has to do with relationship. Now, I believe in grit. I believe that hard work, God says he will prosper the hands of the diligent. This is in no way an excuse to be lazy. The principles are going to share with you. But we live by faith. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. And I I want you to know that there is a certain amount of grit, and I think you'll see in this series of messages, that will take, even if you weren't born into a wealthy family, even if you don't have a prestigious graduate degree, I think there's a certain amount of this grit that I'm going to talk to you about that will take you to places you never dreamed you could go. Some of you have thought, well, I'm just not smart enough. Did you know that Steve Jobs only had a 2.65 GPA? But he definitely had some grit, didn't he? Did you know that Colin Powell, by his own admission, was a C student and was the least likely expected to succeed? And boy, Colin Powell, not only as a Christian, but as a leader, is still one of the most respected men in our nation and avoided a lot of the taint of a lot of what goes on in politics. Did you know that Michael Jordan didn't make the cut on his high school basketball team and was told he couldn't play basketball? I don't know about you, but I find that wildly amusing. Do you know, because of my disabilities and the things that I grew up with, that when I got to college, they told me beforehand I should never go to college. When I got to college, I don't think he meant it hateful, but the vice president of my school said, you don't, you can't make it. You don't belong here. You can't make this. What are you doing? I mean, and it was a Pentecostal school, people who believed in faith. I was so elated in my 40s when I was appointed to the board of that college. (laughs) I was so elated. Not because I could go nanny, nanny, boo-boo, but because what's impossible with man is possible with God. And you've got to remember that. What's impossible with man is possible with God. I love my hero my Lord and my Savior, Jesus. So would you stand with me? Let me read you a verse of Scripture. 
Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. You ought to underline that. Filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read the scriptures, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And he sent me to proclaim the captives will be released, and that the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and the time of the Lord's favor has come. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I not only clap my hands, rejoice with my brothers and sisters, but I kneel before you and confess, as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. Thank you for having the grit, Lord, to endure what you endured, because John 3.16 teaches God so loved this lost world. Now, I know that we will never be worthy, so I pray help us to live worthy of this call and give us this spiritual power, grit upon grit, to be, as we say in our mission statement, passionate followers of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. You can be seated this morning. Well, you won't find the word grit in the Bible if you go through looking for it. But you will find words like this, stamina, perseverance, resoluteness. Matter of fact, we'll use one of those words this morning in this series from the Scriptures is that Jesus was resolute. There have been battleships that Great Britain has named the resolute. We understand that to be this word grit. We understand that. And as we go through this series, we're going to see it in a number of people's lives. But in particular, I want to look at this passage of Scripture this morning and then just pull some principles that will help us enter, I hope, into not only a deeper relationship with Jesus, but a deeper dimension of living for Christ. You see, immediately after Jesus read these scriptures and talked about his mission, the people thought well of him, and the people applauded him. And, and I've talked with more than one Jewish rabbi about this, and that is Jesus then went and sat down in a seat that was reserved for the Messiah, and then people turned upon him. And it's like that in our world today. There are so many people, if you Google the name of Jesus, and be careful when you do because there are some embarrassing sites out there where people try to defame the name of Jesus, But when you Google the name of Jesus, you'll find that there are people who like what Jesus taught. There are people who like the way Jesus lived, but there are people who dislike and even hate Jesus' claim to be Lord, to be God. There are people who take and just blatantly lie. Some of the articles I read, and anybody who read their Bible, any could easily refute these claims. The problem is, So many people don't read their Bibles anymore, and that's why we practice daily Bible reading here at Woodland and daily Bible memorization is so that we can read and comprehend and be able to tell the counterfeit from the truth. So I read these things, and I go, if you read the Bible and it's a living book, you can't help but know that Jesus is Lord. When the people turned upon him, Jesus still had the grit because he wasn't out to earn anybody's approval or or win any 
popularity polls, he knew what he'd been called to do. Now, as a young Christian, I had people tell me this all the time. God will never give you any more than you can handle. How many of you have heard that before? That's just simply not true. God will give you more than you can handle. God gave me more than I could handle when he called me to be your pastor. Yeah. But God never has given me anything more than what he and I could handle together. Do you see the difference? God will always give you more than you can handle. And it's why I've said before from time to time that the place to really live for life is exciting is where you live in that place that you need a miracle from God. You've heard me say this time and time again. If you remember it, say it with me. If you can stand the pulling, we'll pull you through. And that's what I mean by this. It's just that God will never give you anything more. And the way Jesus lived his life, he said, I don't do the things that I do by my own power. I don't even do things of my own will, but I do what I hear my father saying. I do what I see my father doing. I do it by the power of the Spirit of God. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. There's an emphasis upon that because when you first read, and maybe it happened for you this way, there's all kinds of good things that happen when you give your life to Christ. But then as you begin to pursue God's plan and God's will for your life, you run into opposition. And you run in people that want to oppose what God wants to do in your life. But God will be with you. He will pull you. He will drag you. I've told you about the time when I climbed the world's largest waterfall, and I wanted to give up about halfway. I just wasn't cut out for that. And my Indian guide kept pulling me, and somebody behind me kept pushing me, and he kept saying over and over, he says, Pastor, it will be worth it when we get to the top. And when I got to the top, I was cut. I was bleeding. We had been bombed by the meanest, most demon-possessed parrots in the whole wide world. And when we finally got to the top, and I looked out and saw the vista, I understood what my God, Guarani Indian God was saying. It was worth it when we get to the top. And friends, I want you to know when you and I get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. It will be worth it when we get to the top. Can we give him a hand of praise this morning? So I'd like to look at what my hero, the grit that he had, not only to face the torture, not only to face the death, not only to take on these bodies of ours, but to face separation from God. When upon the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So here are some principles that I'd like you to see about this type of grit that I'm talking about. Number one, Jesus knew who he was. Jesus never had any questions. Jesus never had any doubts about who he was. But it's interesting to me as I read my New Testament, as you read your Gospels, how that people wanted to remake Jesus into what they thought Jesus ought to be. It's the same way in our world today. There's so many people who don't want to accept the God of the Bible or even accept the Bible, but they want to make God into their image rather than allow God to begin to shape them and make them new creations. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have liked Jesus if he'd have simply been the kind of Jesus they were looking for. There was even one point when his own family gave upon him. His own mother and his brothers and his sister. He had sisters too. His own mother, brothers and sisters, they said, he's lost his mind. He's out of his head. And they came to try and take him away. 
And there may be times where people will give up on you. There may be times where people who don't believe in you are people who try to mold you and shape you into their image, but be who God has called you to be. It's why we have Discovering My Spiritual Gifts, Discovering My Ministry here at Woodland, where you can take the personality test, and you take the personality profile and the spiritual gifts test. See, everybody in the world is always going to try and remake you and I. When I first started traveling... I had the car that I've told you affectionately about before. It was a Volkswagen diesel rabbit, which I affectionately called a turtle. It should have never been called a rabbit. It was just, people would always wave at me at a red light when I took off with a middle finger, by the way, when I would take off in this little slow diesel car. But I remember when I started traveling, a local politician said to me, you need to get rid of that car. You need to get this kind of car. People respect you more. Friends, I want to tell you something. People will never respect you because of the hood ornament on your car. They will respect you because of the kind of man or woman you are. They will respect you for the character. They will respect you for who you are if you have the integrity of life, that wholeness of life of these principles that I want to show you here. You see, when you end up trying to copy somebody, when you end up trying to wear somebody else's armor the way Saul tried to put his armor on David, when you end up trying to imitate somebody else, You're a cheap copy, but when you are who God has called you to be and created you to be, there's no one like you in the whole world, and you are unique, and we need you. Jesus endured all kinds of things. One time Jesus said, look at John chapter 10. Jesus replied, I've already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my Father's name. Stop. You see, the proof of who we are is how we live our lives. The proof of who we are is the fruit that we bear in our lives. The proof of who we are are the words we speak. Jesus goes on to say, but you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen, circle that word, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. And listen to this last sentence. The Father and I are one. Underline that. And if you want to know why I think Jesus could face the opposition, the disbelief, the criticism, even the torture of being the Son of God is because Jesus knew who he was. And when you know who you are, your stress level begins to go down in life. Because then you're only trying to please one person, and that's God. Even in marriage, we plead, when we work to please God, we can please our spouses. Even in, in raising our children, when we work to please God, we can please our children. Now, they may not always be pleased with what we're doing or even the decisions we make. The disciples weren't always pleased with what Jesus did. But when we are faithful to God, we will develop that reputation of integrity and wholeness in our lives that people learn to trust us. Can you say amen? So number one, Jesus knew who he was. Do you know who you are this morning? Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know what God has said about you? And are you growing daily? Are you seeking to grow daily into the person that God has created you and called you to be? Secondly, Jesus knew what he was living for. He not only knew who he was, but Jesus knew what he was living for. By this life that he was living in, this purpose that he did, Jesus was able to enjoy life. Jesus was even able to be playful in life. 
And I had a professor one time that said, I wish that people wouldn't talk about God having a sense of humor. I wish that people wouldn't talk about God having a sense of, of joy about him. And I was like, how could you say that? And this professor was a good man, but on this particular instance, he was just totally off base. And I met with him, and I talked to him. And then later, as I took Hebrew, and I began to understand some of the Hebrew sayings and how Hebrew language is formed, like when I just used the phrasing for you about the fact that Jesus says, I am in the Father, and you are in me, and we are in him together. That's wedding night imagery in the Hebrew. If you understand that, then there's some things that you can pull out of the Scriptures that help you to see the intimacy that God wants to have with you. But one day, I was reading my Bible, and Jesus' disciples, they knew all the leadership principles. They knew the business principles. They knew the calendar. They knew the schedule. And they had to get Jesus where he needed to be on time. And so when the people wanted Jesus to bless their children... Jesus stopped, and the, the people were pushing him away, saying, no, don't bother the master. He doesn't have time. He doesn't have time. Instead, Jesus knelt down, and he welcomed the children, and he took them in his arms. The Bible says he took them in his arms, and he blessed them. Now, friends, I have been a pastor for a long time. Can I tell you something? Whenever children come up to greet me, they are playful. They come to your arms, your babies. They have pulled my microphone. They have pulled my glasses off. They have pulled my hair. They put their little fingers in my mouth sometime before I can stop them. One of your kids even stuck their finger up my nose when I was holding them one time. That was a horrible moment. I have had more snotty kisses in the wintertime. One of our children, as they come up, there is a sense of playfulness about Jesus. And we get these images of Jesus where he's either stern or he's untouchable. He's a God that wants to be intimate with us. And he does that because he's living for you the way any good dad or good father lives for his family, the way any good pastor lives to serve his church, the way any good employer lives to serve his employees to help them be successful. You were on the heart and mind of God. Can we give him a hand of praise for that this morning? <laughs> Hallelujah. But this is how we know that everything I've just told you is the will of God. I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. John 8, 29, I always do what pleases him. Oh, I wish I could say that. I wish I could tell you. Matter of fact, my voice just cracked trying to tell you that. I wish I could tell you that I always do what God wants me to do. There are times I have to go, God, I am so sorry. There are times I have to go, Becky, I am so sorry. You see, we all fail, but God is merciful. But what I do know is Jesus says no man can serve two masters. And you either live to please God or you end up trying to live to please others. Yesterday, a pastor that I'm mentoring called me, and, and, and I've got permission to share this because it just illustrates this message. And he's in his 30s, young, he's a great guy, doesn't live in our community. Matter of fact, he doesn't even live in our state. And he told me and he asked me about leadership and the problems and the dilemmas that he's having. He says, I can't please anybody. I said, you can please one person. You can please God. And if you will work to please God, then people will respect you and follow you. But if you're working to please people, 
you're, gonna, you're trying to please over 100 bosses then. And I can tell you, I can't even please my wife all the time. And I can promise you, you're not going to please those people all the time. But if you work to please God, they will love you. They will respect you. They will trust you. Your life will bear the fruit of a life that's pleasing God. Sir, we are not trying. You are not trying. Ma'am, you are not trying to win the approval of people. We want the smile of God upon our lives. Can you say amen? And that's why there were so many times when you go through church history, you can hear about some of the greatest leaders in the body of Christ who said they've lived to please only one face, and that's the face of God. So when you know what you're living for, when you know who you're living for, it brings down your stress and it gives you motivation. How many of you would like to have less stress in your life? Can I see your hand? How many of you like to have more motivation in your life? Can I see your hand? Absolutely. So when you know who you're living for, when you know what you're living for, so here are my questions. Do you know what God has called you to do? Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Do you know your person? Have you gone through discovering my spiritual gift, discovering my ministry? And are you involved in ministry? Because it's one thing to say, oh, I've got the gift of this or I've got the gift of that. But where are you serving in the body of Christ or in the community? Where are you serving in a place where you're giving as well as receiving? Because what keeps you motivated is giving, not receiving. It's giving because the more you give, the more that Jesus blesses you. The more you give of your time, the more you give of your faith, the more you give of your friendship. Jesus blesses you for that. On the back of our property, we had a pond we called Bullfrog Pond. The pond was always full, but the pond was always full of scum, and there were no fish in it, but there were all kinds of big frogs in it, and that's why we called it Bullfrog Pond. The pond could not bear the life of fish, but it could bear scum, and it could bear frogs, and it could bear tons of bugs that the frogs loved. And I'm telling you, when you are not giving and you're just receiving, you're just as green and stinky and full of belly aching like those frogs are. You see, giving people don't have time to bellyache. Giving people don't have time to groan. Giving people feast on something more than bugs. We feast on the goodness and the richness of God. Can we give him a hand of praise this morning? <laughs> Hallelujah. Well, it'll bring your stress down and it'll motivate you. The second thing, third thing, Jesus knew how to focus. He wasn't distracted by all the trivia of life. He wasn't distracted by all the little things of life. And I know small things matter. I've read the book. It's a good book. But we're called not to major on the minors, but to major on the majors. And Jesus knew what the focus of his life was. When you look at that cross, and that's a pretty cross. We can change the colors of it. But that cross is nothing like the cross our Lord and Savior bore. And when you see a beautiful golden cross, or when you see a beautiful cross like I've given my wife with a, a jewel in it, that's nothing like the cross my Savior bore. I was in Ethiopia, and one of the things I wanted was a Lalibela cross that I bought for Amy. And every time she wears it, I'm reminded of how the gospel got to Ethiopia and the story behind that cross. I like collecting Celtic crosses because I like the Celtic way of evangelism because the Celts, unlike the Romans, they built monasteries and they built walls to keep the world out. The Celts went out and they built their homes and their churches among the people and they wouldn't put walls around them even though they were surrounded by enemies, but they invited their enemies to come in and to feast and to eat with them. 
because Patrick and his descendants understood that what they were called to do was to be in the world but not of the world. What they were called to do was to love lost people the way our Savior loved lost people. You see, Jesus focused upon what he had came to do, and that was to save us from our sins. You see, sometimes I think Christians fall into the habit of thinking if we're not bad, then we're good. If we're not bad people, if we don't drink, smoke, and chew like other girls do, then somehow or another we're good people. But friends, if Satan can't get you to be bad, Satan will get you to be busy. And he gets you busy in all the minor things, all the trivial things of life. I never say this to my Christian friends, but when I'm out mixing and mingling with people that I know aren't Christians, and sometimes I'll say, well, how are you doing today? I said to an attorney recently, how are you doing today? And he said, oh, I'm busy, busy, busy. He said, I've got more work and I don't know what to do with. And he said, how about you, pastor? And I go, man, I'm never busy. What? I said, no, I'm never busy. I've got the best life in the world. I said, I only work two times a week, Wednesday night and Sunday. And he goes, really? And I go, yeah. I said, I want to be like my Father in heaven. The Bible tells us that he created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh day. I don't want to be like the devil. The devil works all the time. He's busy, busy, busy. My friend says, hmm, you got a point there. You see, what I'm trying to say to you is Jesus wasn't distracted by the trivia of life. Busyness can be another form of laziness. But Jesus was the light of the world. And when you focus light, you create a laser that can cut through steel or iron. And because Jesus knew what he came to do and he focused his life, he not only gave his life for us, but he was resurrected. Life came back into that body as we sang this morning. And he rose triumphant. And friends, he is still the most talked about, most adored name in the entire world today. And even all of heaven cries out, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundations of the world. Hallelujah. It's why Paul said, I will boast about nothing but the cross. It's why Paul said, I will preach about nothing but the cross. Because the cross is good news. Luke 9, 51, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely, circle that word, resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Friends, There's something about spiritual grit, guts, resiliency, integrity, and tenaciousness that will give you spiritual power upon spiritual power. And we know this battle we're fighting, it's not against flesh and blood. It's why I pray against the hateful speech in our nation today. This battle we're fighting is not against flesh and blood. We're not going to win it with weapons of the flesh We're going to win it as the people of God. So what are you living for this morning? Jesus says that no man who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit fit for the kingdom of God. He calls us to come and follow him. So this morning, I want to ask you as well, are you focused? As a passionate follower of Christ, are you focused? Are you living as a passionate follower of Jesus? And if not, What are you going to do about that? God has called you to be more than just sit on a pew. God has called you to do more than drop your tithes into the offering. How are you a passionate father? Do you love to sing his praises? Do you love to come in and worship? Do you love to lift your hands to him? Do you love to pray at home alone? I was talking to a minister of music, and 
shared with me over a cup of coffee. He says, I've got a problem. He says, the only time I worship, not, not Pastor Mark, the only time I worship anymore is when I'm on the platform. I just can't seem to, to develop a habit and a discipline of prayer. My counsel to him was to withdraw and to pull away. How long has this been going on? For years. I says, you can't lead worship. You can't lead people into the presence of God if you have not been into the presence of God. We don't need performance. We need passionate followers of Jesus Christ, not just on the platform, but in the pew as well. So I'm asking you this morning, are you focused? The next thing is Jesus not only knew how to focus, but Jesus prioritized prayer. And I've often thought about that as a young Christian. I don't wrestle with this like I used to wrestle with it, but I thought, I asked my mother one time, if Jesus was God, then why did he have to pray? You know, for me, prayer was about asking for stuff. I said, if Jesus is God, why does he have to? And my mama said, I wish you wouldn't ask questions like that. I said, well, think about it, mama. Is Jesus talking to himself? And my dad just never would get into those kind of discussions. He would sit there and laugh and say, well, Louise, my mama's going to have a big crown when she gets to heaven putting up with my daddy and me. But those are the kind of questions that I used to think about. He's God, but why did he pray? He prayed because he loved the sense of the presence and the fellowship of his heavenly Father. Before he fed the thousands, he blessed the food. He gave thanks to the Father for it. Friends, I want you to know prayer is not just about asking God for your Christmas wish. Prayer is about coming in and sensing the presence and peace of God. Oh, yes, prayer includes asking. God wants you to ask. And I fully believe that the reason and he tells us is to ask is because he intends to do something about what we ask for. So when we pray for the sick, when we pray for a financial miracle, when we pray for insight, when we pray for wisdom, we can expect an answer from God. But I have found in my life that better than any answer to something I wanted on my prayer list, there is nothing that compares to the fellowship of the Spirit, and there is nothing that compares to the fellowship of the church as we worship the Lord together in spirit and truth. Will somebody praise him this morning? Long ago, long ago, I learned the power and the peace that comes from just being in the presence of God, from just being quiet in the presence of God. My doctor one time said to me, he says, your blood pressure issues, which I've kept under control, he says, they're all due to your personality. He said, I'm surprised we didn't have to put you on blood pressure medication until you, you were in your 50s. And um, they've never increased it. And he asked me about that one time. He said, do you meditate? I said, yeah, but probably not in the way you think about. Talk to him about prayer, meditating on the Word and thinking about the Word of God. And my doctor looked at me and then told me he had a Christian background. He said, if I knew prayer was like that, he says, it just kind of got repetitious and boring. You see, it's maybe not the best analogy, but I'm doing with a real good friend when we don't have to talk, when we just enjoy being together. I'm knowing with a real good friend when we can ride in the car and we're just happy to be together. 
we can golf and not have to talk. It's just something about being with that person. One of the best things that I enjoy about marriage is just the fact that Becky and I can sometimes sit quietly together and just hold hands. There's this sense of intimacy. And when you pray, you come into the presence of the Lord to worship and to wait upon Him. And there are times, if I'm to be totally candid and totally transparent with you this morning, that I don't sense the presence of God. And I, that used to worry me, but now I've learned why. Because there are times when God allows you to get to that place where you don't sense His presence. You may come to church and you don't sense His presence. You may go to your quiet time and you don't sense His presence. Now, it shouldn't go on like that forever. But there are times when it seems like God is distant. And you can see this in the lives of some of the apostles. You can see this in lives, and I'll be showing you this in this series. There were times for Jesus on the cross at the time where he needed his presence most, where God turned his back on Jesus. And Jesus says, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? But what I have learned is in those times, and I call them drought, God is pulling my roots deeper and deeper into him. Years ago, I had some sod laid. And the man who laid the sod for me, I like the fact that you amen that I had sod laid. I, the man laid the sod, and then he says, now, do you know how to water this? And I said, no. I said, my neighbor waters his every day. He goes, you don't want to do that. He says, grass needs drought. He said, we're going to start with every other day, then we're going to go to every three days, and then we're going to go to uh, three times a week. And I said, well, look at my neighbor's yard. It's just beautiful. He goes, I know. He said, but walk down here with me. Now, their grass had been there a long time, but he waters it every day. And he walked down, and he says, watch this. And he reached in my neighbor's yard and pulled the sod up. It just came up in his hand. He says, because he waters this every day, the roots stay on top of the ground because they don't have to get deep to get the water. He said, you need the drought to force the roots to grow deeper. It's why I said to you this morning, I don't want you to take this, and it's the reason I'm writing, this is how I see grit in Jesus' life. Because I don't want you to go home and just practice principles. I want you to enter in to the presence of God. I want you to enter deeper into the life of Jesus and to know him. Because when God allows those series of droughts, your roots are growing deeper. And sometimes God allows a lesser drought to prepare you for a bigger drought. Sometimes God allows a lesser trial to prepare you for a bigger trial. How many of you know that's true, looking back over the years of your life? Sometimes God lets you fight a smaller battle to prepare you for the bigger battle. David killed a lion. David killed a bear long before he killed a Goliath. And God allows these things because they put our roots deeper. And the reason David could go out and sling a sling the way he did is because God had given him the victory over two smaller 
battles. And this time, God gave him the victory for all of Israel. And I'm telling you, Jesus was given the victory for all who would believe upon his name because God so loved this world that Christ was willing to give his life and to be separated from the presence of God until God breathed into him the breath of life again and he was resurrected on the third day. Come on, victory this morning. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. Well, I'm almost out of time, so let me quickly wrap this up. And Mark, if you'll come on down, my dear brother. The next thing I want you to see is that Jesus served God with a trusted group. Jesus had a trusted group. Now, I use this rather than small group because you've got to surround yourself with people that you trust, and that's what a small group should be. Matter of fact, one of the men in our church told me this week, he said, Almost everybody in our small group right now has been afflicted or affected by something going on. I was praying with one of our ladies in the hospital yesterday, and she was, she's in the small group, and she was telling me about the care and the love of her small group. You see, small groups are not just for studying the Bible with. Small groups are not just for having fellowship and eating food with. But small groups of Woodland is where we rejoice and we do life together. Amen? It's where we enjoy being with one another. But you want to be with a group of people that you can trust and you can open up your life with and that you can be who you are, people that will welcome you. And you're not going to feel at home in every small group, you know. There are some small groups that you just may not want to be a part of. And if you can't find one, then maybe God's calling you to start a new group. And I'll help you get a new group started. But here's what I want to say to you this morning. Jesus needed a trusted group of people. Look at this verse. Jesus invited those he wanted with him. They climbed together. He settled on 12 and designated them apostles, and their plan was that they would be with him. Circle that phrase, they would be with him, and he would send them out to proclaim the word and give them authority to banish demons. There's something intimate. He wanted them. He wanted them. I had a friend call me and says, can you go do this with me? I says, why? He says, because I want you to. I want you to come go with me. Make this trip with me. You see, when you want something, you invite. You invite. If you want your neighbor to come over for dinner, you invite them over because you want them to. I would hate, I would hate to be the kind of person. I just can't imagine the slavery this would be to have to be inviting people out because they were my boss or to be inviting people out because I was hoping to earn their approval. You and I are never going to be Jesus' boss. And he's still Jesus whether you like him or not. But he wants you to be with him. And you want to know something? Look at me. Don't you admit, I love you. I, wouldn't have, I, I love you from the bottom of my heart. Jesus trusts you. He put his Holy Spirit in you. Holy Spirit a devilish spirit, not a mean spirit, not a critical spirit, not a divisive spirit, not an arrogant spirit, not a proud spirit, not a lascivious spirit, not a lying spirit, not a demonic spirit. He put His Holy Spirit, fully God, fully God inside of you. The fact 
put his Holy Spirit in me. That not only does something for my self-esteem, that does something for my confidence. That does something for my call, for your call. And then one time, he said to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here with me. Keep watch with me. Those three years when I was dying after coming back from Asia and all those surgeries, there were certain people that would just come sit in my room in Oakwood, Dearborn, Beaumont now. They're the people I remember the best because I was opening my eyes and they would just be sitting there praying. I'd go back to sleep and open my eyes and they'd just be sitting there. Jesus didn't want their advice. Unsolicited advice is unwelcome advice. Sometimes advice when people are suffering is the most arrogant, pompous thing you can do. But there's power in your presence. There's power in your friendship. There's power in your love. And Jesus says, come, I need you with me. And I promise you, we'll celebrate every victory in your life. But we'll grieve with you through every trial and every grief you go through. And then finally this morning, Jesus rested. He rested. You know what that means? He worshiped and he played. When I read you that first verse of Scripture, as it was his custom, Jesus worshiped. He didn't say, I can serve God just as well on my sofa. He didn't say, I can serve God just as well, just me and my Bible, the Torah. But Jesus went to the synagogue. He rested. That means after the synagogue service, and they were a little longer than our services, but after the synagogue service, Jesus, like my attorney friend, I told him, he rested. I don't imagine he was a nap taker. And I know for some of you, that's the next thing to heaven is a nap. I think Jesus, I think I'm more like Jesus than you nappers are. I think Jesus feasted, enjoyed people's company. If they played bocce ball, he was playing bocce ball with them and he was good at it. But he rested. Because that word means to renew, to recharge, to refresh. Now, if you nap, that's a good thing. My wife's a napper. She wakes up pleasant, smiling. I love for her to nap. She just, it refreshes her. I don't think Jesus was a napper. I could be wrong. You can disagree with me on that if you want to. I think I'm still right. You're not going to change my mind. But I heard from all the nappers after the first service, so don't bombard me with that after this service, okay? I was surprised how many nappers we have. But the first service is a little bit older than you too, so I expect a little more grace. Jesus rested. He knew how to have fun. You see, I had another pastor call me yesterday morning. He said, can I talk to you for just a second? And I said, sure. Again, this, this pastor pastors a church. It runs about 2,000 people. He said, 
how can I find rest? This is, I just kind of shared this point with him. But I said, you want to know what I did for rest? I said, you don't need to know what I do for rest. I'll be happy to tell you. Because what rests me, what replenishes me may diminish you. You see, each of us are different. What replenishes me may diminish you. What replenishes you may diminish me. I said, so sit down and just ask yourself, what do you enjoy doing? I mean, if you've come to this point in life and you don't know what you enjoy doing, then that's time to see counselor. But can I ask you, do you know what replenishes you? Do you know what refreshes you? Do you know what recharges your batteries? If Jesus had time to rest and worship, you've got time to rest. He said to the the disciples, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. In other words, he said, guys, turn off your iPhones, turn off the internet, turn off the television, and let's go rest. Let's go play for a while. Peter, pull out your fishing pole. Get your net. Let's go catch some fish and let's have a walleye cookout on the shore of Galilee tonight. And he probably said to, you know, there were some ladies that traveled with him, the Bible tells us. He probably said, y'all make some hush puppies and I'll pray into jalapeno peppers from Mexico. And then they probably sing around the campfire. Can you imagine seeing Kumbaya with Jesus sitting right there? Come by here, my Lord. Come by here. I think about those things, what Jesus did to rest. What replenishes you? You see, if you put all these principles together, it will give you a life of integrity. Would you put that up there for just a second? It takes all these principles. But if you look at integrity, you can only have it if you have grit. Guts, resilience, What's the third one? What? Integrity. What's the last one? I knew you'd remember. Grits, they are good for you. Grit is better for you. The Bible says the Son of Man came enjoying life. God doesn't want you to endure life. He wants to enjoy life. But you need Jesus Christ. You need Him as your Lord and Savior. Who are you going to trust with your eternity? Who are you going to trust with your soul? Yourself? Are you going to trust that somehow another science or technology is going to discover a way that we'll live forever? Are you going to trust some New Age prophet? Are you going to trust in some Eastern religion? I mean, who are you going to trust? Who else? have the integrity of life to endure the cross so that if you believed in him you could have eternal life would you bow your heads with me this morning heavenly father i thank you for the integrity of jesus's life i thank you lord for the new life that you offer to all who believe in your name eternal life One day I will close my eyes upon this earth. I breathe my last. But, oh, Lord, that holds no fear for me. 
For I know that when I open my eyes again, I will see the face of Jesus. <laughs> Angels will be there. My family will be loved and cared for. God, the work of the church will go on. Because Jesus had the grit of integrity to die for my sins. Friend, he loves you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then I'm asking you right now. Would you, would you give your heart to Christ? I promise you this. If you'll open your heart to God, if you'll ask him, God will not only forgive you, but he will make a brand new person out of you. You will never have the integrity of life. Or you may be honest, you may tell the truth, but you'll never have the integrity. There's more to life than honesty. There's more to life than facts. The integrity of life. Until you are born again. And all you have to do is confess the name of Jesus. So if that's you, would you just pray this prayer with me quietly? Say, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me so much that you sent your only begotten Son so that whosoever would believe in him my sins and today I confess Jesus as the Lord and the Savior of my life for it's in your name I pray and everyone said Amen and Amen let's give the Lord a hand of thanksgiving would you I hope there was room but in the growth work this is the growth work I gave to you this week. Jesus said, come to me. All of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you, say it with me, rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart. And you will find, what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Anytime you see a word repeated like that, you need to take note of it. You see, rest and worship, your family, they're part of the Big Ten. God said we're to keep this day holy. And we honor Him by resting and loving and celebrating life with our families. Amen? God bless you. I love you. I hope you have a wonderful week.